Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of the practical guide to evil wear. A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Will we ever learn more about this mysterious, all-powerful dwarven kingdom that places no value on humanity? Why is Eris breaking the law? Is she a criminal? And given that Juniper had problems pronouncing Sacker's name, but could call her Auntie Sax, the difficult sound there would be the end er sound in it, which implies that the er is a difficult thing. And one of the most difficult R's in our world is the American R, the back of the throat er sound. And does that mean that Laura meets and uses the American R? And if that's the case, why did such a rare phonetic element end up permeating the meets and language? Or was this a later development in the If you can't play to your strengths, play to your enemy's weaknesses. Marshall Grimm, One Eye. This chapter, called Council, is about a council. Catherine, Ooh. Juniper, Hockram, all gather together with Istrid, with Black, with Antisax, and they plot the coming war. Catherine is mostly given assignment more than really participating and plotting, but that's very appropriate. Name or not, that's just the right choice here. Oh, Juniper yeah. also doesn't get much to say, and that's also fair. Cat, Cat is the junior of the Legion commanders here by a, a huge stretch. Juniper is a step below Cat. Hockram is an adjutant who's coming into a name, but, you know, and important also for hierarchy, Cat's name is directly attached to and subservient to Black's name, and, you know, it's the knight and the squire. And then Hockram, the other person with kind of a name here, is directly beneath Cat. So he also, you know, there's there's a very distinct, yep, you three are here, but uh, let the adults do the decision making. Which is refreshing considering how often Catherine's mantle of power is one of authority that she has wielded relatively well, but doesn't necessarily confer the abilities demanded of one in those positions. That said, the opening epigraph from Marshall Grem One Eye 
I think it's a hilarious dig at Catherine because rather than talking about their strategy, I choose to interpret if you can't play to your strengths, play to your enemy's weaknesses as Catherine's going into a council where she is not going to be very strong because she's bad at it. And she later on learns how to use her enemy's weaknesses when she's in a when she's in an organized interpersonal setting because she cannot rely on her own powers. Is there a better interpretation of this in relation to the chapter? Let's move on. I respect that. We have here the ninth and the sixth legions. And that means that we get to see the ninth again, who have that traditional red streak of paint across their throat. And I'm just always gratified to see, ah, yes, the cool legion for cool people. They're so metal. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Metal sorry, the sixth. Yeah, the iron sides, my bad. They're, they're just, they're so cool. <laughs> you know who's cooler, though? Who's that? General Istrid, who is one of the most accomplished individuals in the Empire, mm -hmm. despite her lack of a name, and who has produced extraordinary spawn. She apparently tends to boast about her prodigious daughters when she gets into her cups. And that's great. Juniper is the best. But also, it says daughters with an S, which in the English language denotes more than one. Colloquially known as plural. Yeah, that is colloquial. I didn't know she had other kids. Yeah, I, I don't recall. I would like to know them. about these other kids, please. Yeah, I, I don't even know that I've... Re Does Juniper ever mention siblings even, like offhandedly? Or half-siblings even? Like She any... barely mentions her mother. Yeah, that's Not true. Not like an embarrassed way, just she's yeah. a consummate professional. Right. Much like Captain, she goes home after work hours end and continues to work. I was gonna say, hold on, it's not quite the same. She doesn't. She doesn't go home to family life. She just is working all the time. She has no family life, so she never mixes. She has no problem with the boundary between work and home. Uh, but of course, speaking of people with boundaries, Masego was invited and he turned it down. He and he did this. With a little pizzazz, he said that he would prefer to count ants than inflict a session of military play on himself. Quote: Since at least there was some sort of scholarly, since at least there was some sort of scholarly value to the former. What a gem! I love this kid. We need more people like Z's in the world for many reasons, but especially this one. I know. I feel a setting would run out of gods pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, fair. Speaking of things uh, far out of our reach, mm -hmm. Catherine was thinking that it was a shame there were no assassin guilds in the Empire, because with her general's pay stacking up, she might actually be able to afford putting a price on Sahelian's head. And I can promise you, Kat, that Aquia Sahelian already has everything worth getting under her thumb, and she's got it pinned there at prices you could not begin to afford. You're... A kid from Callow playing general. This is the heiress of Wolof. She is, before her name, by birth, more than your entire hometown would ever amount to. Yeah, but Kat's been getting paid to be a general, so basically the same thing. I'm telling you, I will be acting exactly the same way Catherine does the first time I have a job that pays over $25,000 a year. But, by which I mean, I will get someone to assassinate you. Oh, fair. Hey. Sweet release and all that, you know? On a lighter note, 
Cat is accompanied, as mentioned, to this meeting by uh, Juniper and Hawkram, which means there's a bit of a reunion that takes place. A family reunion! When they walk in, Istrid's face lights up at the sight of her daughter, which, quick pause, is so sweet. It's the best. And she follows protocol. She greets Catherine first, almost absentmindedly. She says, Squire, and claps her shoulder and moves on. <laughs> oh, it's good. And she heads over to Juniper, and uh, if I may, I will read a bit from the chapter. She, Istrid, fell upon her daughter like a particularly affectionate pack of wolves. Now, we know that goblins move like a pack of spiders. Apparently, individual orcs can move like a pack of wolves. That's a, that's an impressive amount of movement and also danger for Istrid here. So, you know, good for her. And, uh, you know, while Juniper is happy to see her mother, I'm sure... Not so good for Juniper because of the company. Yes. Unfortunately, the all-seeing eye of true evil is present. Oh, no. Hakram gives the whole thing a wide berth. But from the glint in his eyes, I knew every rat company officer was going to have heard the story before morning. I love that child. And to be clear, for those of you who are not actively reading along, uh, the thing that they're going to hear about is Istrid staying to her daughter, reminder, a uh, legate in the Legions of Terror in charge of the new Legion under a named. Look at you, all grown up in the kit. It feels like yesterday you were playing Knights and Legionaries with sticks. This is in front of, uh, let's see, Juniper's direct commander in Cat, somebody who's, I think, technically subordinate to her in, in Hawkram, in front of Stacker, a, one of the more famous or infamous generals in the Legions, and... The Black Knight himself. It's great. And I have to express a curiosity about why Istrid chooses to do this. Because she's otherwise so on top of things. But why would this be an intentional gambit? But She just loves her daughter, okay? I just love her. Yeah. Maybe she learned that as long as she's being fun, she can never be killed. As long as she doesn't, you know, get seriously involved in a battle or something and get distracted, I bet she'll make it through the entire series without getting killed. Oof. Anyway. Uh, I'm just Sack- doing this every episode now. Yeah, you're going hard. Uh, Sacker tries I'm, to... Oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry. I mean, pretty soon you'll run out of characters to make... I was about to say veiled references. Pretty soon you'll run out of characters to make direct references about their death. You know, it's fine. I can just start at the top. Oh, yeah, we'll just cycle through. Yeah, go alphabetically, starting at R. Wow. I, why would you bring that up? <laughs> this is just cruel at this point. Sorry, uh, I would do no such thing. Which is what Istrid says when she's accused of embarrassing herself over fussing. She said, I was doing no such thing. And I think she's right. She is still General Istrid. She can't embarrass herself. She has the license granted by fame and authority to do whatever she wants. Juniper, on the other hand, I think is perhaps lightly embarrassed. Slightly. A little bit. Which is funny. Uh, You know, Sacker stepped in to halt the embarrassment and then uh, 
Speaking of evil having a name. Right. To halt the embarrassment and then looks over at everybody and greets them. Juniper very formally says General Sacker. And instantly Sacker's defense of the situation, her attempt to make things more professional, is murdered by the goblin as she gets a wicked glimmer in her eyes. Whatever happened to anti-sax? She asked. Just absolutely brutal. Which makes me realize that Sacker may have just decided to ruin Juniper's life and made a bet with Istrid. And I don't care how the money is getting exchanged, Sacker has won. I mean, very much I can envision a situation where Sacker has said to Istrid, hey, your daughter's going to be as a, uh, you know, as a professional legate of a legion for the first time in a room with the Black Knight. Let's bet on who can embarrass her more. <laughs> you know? uh, but Juniper tries to defend herself against the anti-sax accusation, reminder, by uh, whining, more or less. I was four years old. It was a hard word to pronounce. Fair enough. But just a reminder, uh, Perhaps the best military mind of a generation, everyone. This person who is being humiliatingly beat down by her mother and her aunt in front of culturally one of the most important people to her entire people. Whoops. Everyone has fun. Hawkrum revels in the blackmail that he has. Mm-hmm. And then Black clears his throat and everyone falls silent. And at that point, Juniper's blush deepens and she gives him... If not a curtsy, the bastard cousin of a curtsy. Oh, no. And says, Lord Black. And I just love, and we we know this, but the orcs adore Amadeus of the Green Stretch. And I, Juniper is most embarrassed that he is clearly witness to all this. And I love him and them and her and a practical guide to evil. And... Clearly she's flustered here, because I, like, I may not know the ins and outs of crazy military doctrine and tradition, but I have a feeling that a legate greeting the Black Knight the, in a war camp, that the proper greeting is not, in fact, a curtsy. When it comes to... Sometimes you just default to a respectful reflex, okay? I guess... This chapter leaves out an extraordinarily unimportant detail that I would like to fixate on. Okay. I was clued into this. I began thinking about this when they look at the map. It covers the whole of Callow, though the word itself was nowhere in sight. Oh, that's kind of cool, actually. It's an imperial territory, but the country itself is removed, and they just use it. Mm -hmm. That's fun. Yeah. A bronze figure of a knight had been placed over Vale, another one where the eastern side of the... Hengist or Hengist or Hengist Lake met the waning woods, and a third on the crossing linking the county of Marchford to Central Callow. The Silver Spears, unless I was wrong. A silver legionary figure had been placed over Dormer, and a pair of the same over the rough location of the village we currently stood on, northeast of Vale. We have a lot of place names here, but the word Callow is taken away. The Callowiness of the land, the identity it's removed a bit, but especially with nation-states, language itself can be seen as something of a cache of identity. And this is a really dangerous ground, and I'm not making the argument. I'm saying that the argument can be made. 
and of culture. But if the map doesn't say Callow, what names are they using for the places? Is it the Waning Woods in Lower Meetson? Or is it a Precy language's version? For that matter, what language are they using amongst themselves? The majority in the room, if I count correctly, are orcs who likely speak their native Karthum. The goblin language is not open to outsiders, so that's not an option. Catherine is native to Lower Meetson, and I'm not actually sure off the top of my head if Black would in fact be a native speaker of Mthethwa. I reckon? I imagine he's natively sp- like speaks Mthethwa and Lower Meetson. That has to be the case, right? Border oh, between what language do they use among themselves then? And you're right. Uh, border between Callow and Brace, yeah. Yeah. Especially we can all talk about the invention of monolingualism, David Gramling, but particularly outside of modern giant monolingualish states like the United States of America, multilingualism has been the only way of life. But that all acknowledged. What language resources are they employing here? Karthum, because orcs are in the majority, and Black sees them as equal in personhood, so why not? Mthethwa, because it's a proper imperial convention. Lower Meetsen, because they're in Kalo, feels like a really weird choice. I'm I'm sure it's Mthethwa, right? It it's an it official. Seems likely, like this but... is an official war council for the Legions of Terror. I can't imagine there are actually language requirements in the official war council, though. No, but I'm saying because a an official war council would include people who would definitely uh-huh. have the shared language language of Mthethwa, even if they don't share others. It just seems like that'd be the one that they would default to in all such instances. That makes a lot of sense. Though, of course, I expect Legion functionaries, much like Legion officers, are required to have some extensive training and proficiencies in languages because it's the only reasonable way to be a functionary. Oh, yeah. But I I think your reasoning is sound. Especially here for the Legion stationed in Callow, I would wager anybody who's not intentionally avoiding it for some reason, any of the, from the Legionaries to the Legates, everybody in between speaks Mthethwa, has a decent understanding uh, capability with Lormitsin. I imagine, frankly, most legionaries probably know Karsum. It would be wild for them to not, considering the percentages of orcs in the legions. Um, uh, barring the, you know, vampire and dragon legions, who are mostly dead people, so who knows what's going on there. Uh, but outside of that, yeah, I, I imagine the, the legions have three to four languages that the vast majority of people speak relatively well, or at least to a a level of understanding. It's like Switzerland in here. And just as peaceful. Yep, Prace. I I know that, you know, EE has said time and again that Prace was heavily modeled after Switzerland. Imperial Switzerland, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Expansionist Switzerland. So, Eris is kind of gross. Yep. Actually, let me revise that statement. Eris is gross. There you go. And her enormity of the day is that she has moved into Southern Callow with some soldiers, including a full Stygian phalanx. And that implies 
she's using slaves, which is illegal under Tower Law. And first of all, slavery in every form in history, not just the exacerbated and unforgivably more unforgivable American chattel slavery, but slavery in all its forms, disgusting. But it's illegal under Tower Law, and there are reasons. It got the orcs under their banner in the early days after the Meetsin occupation. But what a cool thing that Praise has that my country technically doesn't. I uh, like slavery being illegal. Yeah, it's a good one. It, we should expand the 13th Amendment to be just applied to people. Just to get rid of exceptions to it. I think that would be, and somehow this is in some circles controversial, the only moral choice. Yeah, but uh, Eris disagrees because she's got slaves. Well, quote-unquote slaves, and who have been quote-unquote freed, as we'll deal with shortly. Regardless, though, she's using slaves in territory that is technically not imperial territory, and thus the law doesn't apply there? And the rationale here isn't, oh, it's Caloan territory, which, I don't know, doesn't qualify as imperial territory, but rather provincial holdings, and that enjoys a legal loophole. No, no. Technically, the territory held by the rebels is not imperial ground on a legal basis. Black noted. Um, that's a, like, I get that Praise has a system that is based on regular civil war, mm -hmm. which also is wild to think about. But I guess Prosser does too, actually. A but, little less, but yeah, yeah. So I can see why there would be certain incentives to have two sets of laws, except everyone who either retains or seizes power would be incentivized to, I suppose, actually, the high seats. It's all about the high seats. They want to be able to back a claimant and not be held culpable for whatever enormities they commit. There we go. It's the high seats. It's one of those weird, you know, professional villainous class things. E.E., e. sure. you got it. That makes sense. Because my question was less about why this doesn't count as territory and more why does it matter. My, I was operating through the... I mean, Eris is still Precy, and is she not beholden to the laws when operating officially as a Precy citizen? But I guess for the same reason, no. They want to be able to have, for a modern-day equivalent, tax havens or what have you outside of Precy land, and it's fine because they're not in Precy borders, and so what you do out there doesn't count. Sure, yeah, I guess it all flows together for that reason. Yeah, and that's why I do this podcast. To figure things out and make to, you listen to the process. To learn about tax havens. But none of this is actually a relevant discussion because Eris freed all of her slaves. Uh-huh. Which is, you know, fundamentally good step. However, it meant absolutely nothing, says Catherine, when they'd been indoctrinated from birth to obey the orders of their owners without fail. And there exists here room for a discussion about whether it's problematic, how it's problematic to take away the fundamental human desire for freedom from anyone in an enslaved position in a story and whether it's responsible, blah, blah, blah. And EE e. does so much very responsibly. And I think this is 
a small aside of a point and also a fiddly thing that's not worth getting into. But I acknowledge that space is there. I would rather just want to acknowledge the difficulty present in granting agency and those not in a position to exercise it. That is to say, there are a lot of places where no matter how much freedom you want to give someone, freedom of decision, freedom of choice, arguments are made that they can't responsibly exercise it. A plain example is in terms of hierarchical relationships. It's If a subordinate and an authority figure get involved with each other romantically, there are major concerns there, major difficulties. And yet to say that the subordinate cannot consent, cannot act and act with the freedom anyone else would be afforded is to limit or question the legitimacy of their agency. And in a much more dire way here, oh, these people are naturally desirous of slavery at this point, or of acting as slaves because of their indoctrination. Are we not supposed to allow them to do what they want? There's a lot of thorniness around the subject. Well, I mean, yeah. And I like that Catherine's reaction is simple. Yeah, I, there's a, her reaction is simple. It's just, you know, it's bad. She resists the urge to spit on the ground and starts talking practicalities. But it is, it is important to remember that in this discussion about do you allow people incapable or unwilling even to act on emancipation to create their own what their own consent means um that the type of trauma and ingrained training i guess to use a real rough word but one that probably applies here um inflicted upon a people indoctrinated from birth means that without trying to say well they're just you know they don't they're not full people or whatever are they actually, I mean, I know this is exactly what you're saying, but are they actually capable of wanting something different without it? Not saying they're incapable of desire or anything like that, but more they have probably, frankly, if they were slaves, a conditioned fear response to independence and a conditioned safety response to just unthinking obedience such that, yeah, I. it's a, <laughs> what did you say, a thorny issue? Uh, yes. Um, and no matter what you say on the issue, you just feel like you're digging a hole of saying gross things. Yeah, there's yeah because exactly. you are. One mm -hmm. is I'm 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 not. A, oh yeah, yeah. It's all bad, and I'd be curious if anyone has any good reading on the subject. Actually, I'm my my research did not quite fall into those bounds. It was into the psychology of sudden freedom. Yeah, I was a. Germanist by training, not a Stockholmist. <laughs> so anyway, uh, slavery is bad, and Eris is bad, and combining the two is extra bad. Yes, if you come away from this episode with any thoughts, it should be slavery is bad. Yes, slavery is bad. You uh, know what else is bad? Yeah, <laughs> what else is bad? Pillaging! Uh, Eris is not paying her troops solely with, la with wages. She is allowing them to pillage. Which means that corner of Callow will despise the Empire for generations. Yeah, I mean, it's a time-honored tradition, armies pillaging. But specifically here, she bought slaves, quote-unquote freed them, and then isn't paying them. <laughs> and is rather saying, 
go out and steal from everybody around you. Wowee. I know this may shock some listeners who have really come to recognize my reputation as a conservative traditionalist. But, you know, sometimes traditions are bad. So, heck it. Just don't pillage. Oh, simply do not pillage. Good point. Why does Catherine, the most moral soldier, not simply not pillage? Oh, wait, she does. Yeah. Um, but there's this, there's the issue of the pillaging, making Callow angry at the Empire. Hawkram says, well, she's not acting as the Empire. She's acting as a private citizen. Naturally, Cat points out that doesn't matter. Uh, they're not going to say, well, it's a Sinike, but not one officially associated with the government. No, the Kalowans are going to be mad at the Empire for this, obviously. So Kat, of course, asked the question, why isn't the Empress doing anything about this? Why isn't Eris being reined in? And Black, we know there's some things going on here, but Black's face goes blank. He hides what he's thinking, but doesn't hide that he is thinking something. And uh, he... Could that possibly be in reference to? Right. He he gives this super vague... Uh, the political situation back in Ater complicates the matter and gives some, you know, official response to what's going on here. It is a pretty revelatory response to the situation. And uh, <laughs> Kat clearly doesn't miss that based on some of the things she says later in this chapter. So I enjoy the dry humor of so very, very many people in this world. Or perhaps the dry humor emergent from understated analysis. Discussing Aquia's strategies in the South, Sacker introduces her next point with, regardless of her undesirable behavior, she's tactically useful. And I just enjoy, oh look, she's turning the land against the tower for a generation. That is undesirable behavior. And you know what? I think most people in the room can agree. Yeah, it's a nice, a nice. Hey, strategically, I'd rather this not be happening. But in this moment, we'll take advantage of it, right? Uh, it's a, uh, it's a nice. I don't know. Generally speaking, goblin mentality, like the goblin culture. Like, let's take advantage of this situation and make the best of it. And uh, while also, Stacker is a pretty smart individual and is aware of the larger consequences of what's going on here. I think you misspoke there. Did I? You said generally speaking, it's General Sacker. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Generally Sacker. And then you can just cut that in when you're doing editing. Sacker, I hardly... Okay. <laughs> Gosh. Um, so part of the uh, concern with the upcoming confrontation is that, um, the, is that Marchford has at her command um, a couple of forces that can actually stand up to the legions. Uh, including one infantry force, which is rare because, as we've discussed before, the legions are kind of the premier infantry force, but there was a specific caveat on the surface, and that is the issue here. Uh, Marchford has 2,000 dwarven heavy infantry, and unsurprisingly, Cat hasn't read much about dwarves and doesn't know exactly what they can do or what this means, and that's probably a broadly shared sentiment, but... Cat has this room with General Sacker and Black himself and, you know, these great military minds with tons of experience and so much time to research and all of these things. And 
in this room, she says, I've never read anything about dwarven troops. Juniper? <laughs> she, out of everybody in this room, she turns to, you know, this kid, basically, <laughs> and says, what do you know about the dwarves? <laughs> Not opening up to the room, but specifically turning to her her legged. Uh, you know, and the trust there is great, and also the assumption that Juniper is going to know the most. And Juniper answers directly, succinctly, completely. And as she talks about it, she references the dwarves having been more than a match for a prince's standing army. And Catherine says, oh, I'd heard about that. The dwarves had retaliated by sinking old Isaac underground and wiping out the surviving population. And I gotta say, that seems like a pretty effective plan. No notes. I mean, yeah. Hey, you're gonna flood us? Well, come on down. <laughs> it's, uh... It, it makes the dwarves, like, every time we hear about the dwarves, it starts setting up how terrifying they are when it comes to just being everywhere and being able to do big things. And this is just an example of that. Sure, we just dragged the city underground and killed everybody in it. And then that caused a shift in the geopolitics of all of Colernia, because Kat goes on to tell us that that's the reason that most Colernian nations had laws forbidding the provocation of the kingdom under. Yeah, you see a city sink, you probably take some precautions. You know, once it's similar, you saw what happened when somebody got three red letters, you take precautions. These dwarves must be the undisputed rulers of all of the underground, right? Well. Well, uh, we get a nifty first mention here. Hakram says, nobody scrapped with them since, 700 years ago. That information has to be outdated. And Black notes, the drow and the Everdark have clashed with them on occasion. Hey, I know them. They're all of them terrible. <laughs> it's nice to hear about our friends. They're all of them terrible, but then, but we can say that as the readers because we love them. Black goes on to refer to the Underdark, or the Everdark, the Underdark. Sorry, wrong setting. Black goes on to refer to the Everdark as a rat hole. And I just gotta say, whoa, whoa, whoa. he can't say that. Come on, the drow are great. He might be a little confused. The rat hole is way northwest. I mean, fair. Maybe he's, maybe it is a confusion thing. He is getting old. I'm checking the map. You were right, it is northwest, if that's what you're double checking. Perfect. I'm just upset that the maps we have label it as the chain of hunger rather than the rat hole. I think that would be... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he so. wrote a very good series, but one note that would be just a clear improvement, rat hole. Yeah, so uh, listeners, if any one of you makes a map, because I know that happens every so often, a nice artistic map of Colernia, uh, rat hole, please. And that is wielding our influence for good. Just like dwarves wield their legal interpretations for hilarity for people reading it outside of their universe. Wow, that was great and not a stretch at all. Night Note said keeping the dwarves paid must be costing the principate a fortune, which we know doesn't matter because they're so very rich right now and always will be. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, not to mention their creative notions regarding private property. And the fact that only dwarves can own property is just a beautiful little note. If it were inflicted upon a colonized people by settlers, that would be terrible. But no, this is just deeply amusing to me. Good job, dwarves. It's a powerful stance to take, especially when they have trade deals with certain, you know, surface nations. 
and they're still just like, also, you can't own property. Phenomenal. But uh, all of this to say that Istrid and Sacker uh, are and Black are going to deal with the dwarves. They're not actually uh, going to be a focal point for our part of the story because Cat um, and Juniper and Hockham and all of our friends are going to be dealing with the Silver Spears, which Istrid uh, lets us know. Um, and we kind of transition into talking about the broad sweeps of this campaign, that we are no longer uh, defensive, that it's time to for all of the legions to march out. It's time to uh, start ending this, this rebellion, uh, which Black definitely is doing for purely strategic reasons. It's, you know, it, the, the, the time is now to do this. There's no outside influence encouraging him to hurry this up. This is all Black, right? We just had an interlude about this. Go oh, back and listen a few episodes ago. I, I don't listen to the or read the interludes. Oh, probably just, for the best. I just assume they're not important or they'd be main chapters, you know? Nothing good happens in any interlude. This is the official stance of podcast guys talking erratic errata. Agreed. Especially that interlude you're thinking of. Pointless. That said, I am just deeply amused because they need to fight the Silver Spears whom they can't get great intelligence on because they have prevented scrying, suggesting they have a priest of some talent along. Black tells us that this makes sense, considering the close ties of the Helikian royal family with the House of Light. Who is the currently ascendant member of the Helikian royal family in Heliki? Uh, Just like a really normal, nice guy who definitely gets along with the House of Light very well. They're funky little dude. And I just love that our funky little dude is from the Holy House. That's that's cute. It's It really is good, yeah. So Catherine is sent off to do war, and the council ends. But the social niceties do not. Or perhaps family time? Because Black invites Cat up to his rooms for a conversation after dinner? Yeah, there's a... There's a dinner, I just to note, there's a dinner that takes place with everybody that the narrative just fully skips over. The narrative does not skip over it. The narrative explicitly covers it in three words. Dinner was pleasant. And if you think about it, that's more than we got about breakfast and lunch. And since all fantasy worlds is the same, also more than we got about a second breakfast. It is. It Dinner was built up to be this thing where there's going to be a lot of important people there and... I'm sure some interesting things happen and we just sort of skip over it, which is fine because we have to get to something a little more important, which is, like you said, a family discussion in the the attic or wherever it is Black hangs out. And like all, okay, like the stereotype is about the way conversation turns when you have, when you show up in town to have dinner with your family at like Thanksgiving or something. This is the in-universe Thanksgiving, right? Yes. Of course, it has to turn to the main character's love life, which I have to say, it's never a phenomenon I found in my own family. Never has anyone brought up the subject of, are you seeing anyone? Oh, are you actually getting a job now? Oh, how's your silly little podcast? No, nobody brings it up. They're just nice. And we enjoy each other's company. With my family, we just sit in silence for the hour and a half of the meal and all goes to our separate ways afterwards. But the conversation begins with uh, Black basically saying, hey, let's talk about the people you're close to. You're important now. We got to 
you got to understand like threat assessment and where what danger they're in and what danger they are to you and whether you can trust them. There's a lot going a very on. Very reasonable direction yeah. of conversation. Absolutely. This is the kind of thing that if Cat were an officer and not named, wouldn't need to happen, I don't think. Uh, or at least wouldn't come from Black directly. But this is as much uh, name lore training as it is, hey, you're important. We need to talk about your personal relationships. Um, so it, it's a it's a good discussion. And he starts going through different people in Kat's life. First, he mentions your paramour, Kat's paramour, um, and then goes into sort of all the different senior officers. And, uh, you know, Juniper's fine. Uh, Pickler's fine. Uh, Ratface is fine. Aisha's fine. Oh, he's fine. Yeah. Sorry, I, I should have emphasized Wait, that better. Does it not mention how hot he is here? Um, just that he's openly feuding with his father, which is an attractive trait. So, True. but nonetheless, this might be a first. You're not wrong because Cat gets distracted by something. Um, but first, uh, one of the there's a couple other people. You know, she talks about Knock, but first she says Hugh or, or Black says Hune, um that we meaning scribe, of course, they have little hard knowledge on Commander Hune, and then goes on to say, still, someone to watch. Is this why Kat doesn't like Hune? Does it come out of, like, this, like, little comment from Black, like, ah, oh, keep an eye on Hune, and Kat does and doesn't see anything she actually likes, and it sticks way too hard for years and years of a really healthy working relationship where Hune is just nothing but competent? How many ogres does Cat interact with? Including fighting? Or just like... I mean, that right there expresses a lot. Catherine has grown up with orcs around as just people. And she's had enough interactions with goblins. And they are goblin enough that the way she perceives them is appropriate for what they are. Sure. Are ogres? Is ogre just a thing a person can be? Or is it a type of person to her? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, I think it's a thing a person can be for Cat. She never, like, her dis, her, her lack of trust, I don't know, she trusts Hune. Just her general vibe with Hune really feels personal. I don't really feel like it ever comes up, like, about Hune's race, you know? It's just that Hune is true. just not someone Cat gets along with. Like, that. that's a relationship that's not really explored, and I think that is that says enough that Cat just never makes an effort there. And I'm wondering if that lack of effort starts here. Also, I mean, to be fair, Hewn also doesn't, but I think that's just because, like, ogres typically stay out of politics, could very well include Hewn doesn't try to rub elbows with Cat and get in good with the the woe, and, you know, that she's just sort of her own person uh, and is just in the I wish we knew more. I know, I also wish we knew more about Hewn. She gets, about ogres. Hewn gets one of the most metal scenes in this entire series. Like, her death is phenomenal. She's straight warlocks. And we just, like, don't know enough about her for it to be anything more than just really, really cool. And it's sad. Like, uh, you know, we don't want Hune to die, but there's not the same weight if, you know, if, say, heaven forbid, sorry, God's Below forget, forbid, Robber were to die. Or, God's Below forbid, Bridge Boy himself, Khaled, I'm sorry, Nilan were to die, which I'm sure won't happen. 
and would be a terrible thing. Well, listen, if Nilan's death involved, I don't know, a giant bridge falling on him and killing everyone around him as well, I'd be okay with that. Well, yeah, because he'd be okay with that. And you have to respect people's wishes. That is what I, I, th- I do recall when Dylan says, if I have to go out, I want it to be by falling bridge. I hope they have death certificates in praise. And I hope that they have a cause of death section. Because honestly, going through the archives and reading those would be greatly amusing. Cause yeah. of death, bridge, cause of death, tapir, cause of death. Pack of spiders. Cause of death. One single enormous spider, parenthesis, dread emperor, question mark, parenthesis. So I think what we need to do is sign a petition to have E release the, the death certificates. I, we know he's got them. Speaking of deaths that we now know about, uh huh. we're going through everyone in the party. Oh, look, so many people are cleared. Hune is likely good. Watch out. And then Commander Nock has made several enthusiastic public statements in your support, though about half were made when inebriated. Great, cool, cute, but without any interruption, which I'm putting in by noting there's no interruption, but Mm -hmm. I want to stress how amusing it is. Black goes straight from half were made when inebriated to he's also wanted for murder in Thalassina. (laughs) Big fan. Just sort of toss that out there. Oh, and by the way, for what it's worth, though, knock committed murder while not fully in control of what was going on. So is he really to blame? Because he was drunk, like we learn he has done before now. And if you're drunk once, you were probably drunk all the time. Blood drunk, so to speak. Blunk, as they say. Yes, because he was blunk. Which I believe is the uh, in-universe term for the Red Rage, right? Yep. Black. I mean, I'm reading the chapter right here. The man struck him and your own went into the blunk. The blunk. Well, <laughs> Black said, said it, not you. Yeah, the word the was there. And I mean, what was he going to do? Not continue on? Like, come on. Blunk, it, it goes there. It's fine. The Blunk. I I regret that we have ended up here, but I look forward to the next time the Red Rage comes up. 50-50, we remember. And it's always an adventure. 50-50 is very generous. Well, I don't remember 50% of the times that we forget, so. Oh, hey, now you're up. thinking. Uh but they go on to, to discuss Nock a little bit, or, I mean, that's about the end of it. Cat defends him. Uh, and then we get a bit more, we get a, an interesting point from Cat where, um, you know, she's kind of talking about whether, about Nock and uh, the Red Rage, sorry, and the Blunk, and Orcs in general. Um, and we get a line from her that's pretty interesting. Uh We've talked a lot about how much we like orcs in uh, in this setting for a number of reasons, but this one is really cool because she says, most of the time I got along with orcs better than humans. The way they looked at creation wasn't simpler, not exactly, but it was clearer, less cluttered. It was all too easy to forget. It was also brutal. And I just, I really like this mindset that Kat has because it, it feels honest about how she views the orcs and how we as the reader can then view the orcs because we're looking at the world through cat's eyes it's not this simplistic like tribal paradigm like stereotype where it's just yeah they've got a really simple view of the world because everything's either food or uh, a 
friend and those are your two choices and orcs are dumb because they don't have nuance no it's just they their viewpoint their the paradigm through which they look at the world is just less cluttered they they don't waste time with other things with you know other things getting in the way and they just culturally aren't getting bogged down in frivolous things like humans do and it's presented as like a yeah orcs just have a better vibe for someone like cat or and for you know many other people including obviously the orcs it's just a, a nice way to present the warlike race the the people who love to fight without it just being yep they're bloodthirsty savages and that's all there is oh i do think there's a definitely dangerous side to this coin too because Catherine says the way they looked at creation wasn't simpler, not exactly, but was clearer, less cluttered. The way they looked at creation. She knows that orc mores and cultural views and indeed preoccupation with studying the blade and having got an anime on their side mm-hmm. is pretty straightforward as she understands it and as she has been told to understand it, though it's also difficult to find an accurate reporter one's own culture, though easier when one's culture is thrown into sharp contrast by the shadows of empire. Speaking of which, please read A Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martin. It's a magnificent novel, and its sequel is pretty good, too. Full support. Absolutely strong recommendation there. But we are, I think, a good few steps away, and we are well-meaningfully a few steps away a fair few steps from a noble savage where it's such a beautiful simplicity that these simple creatures have. We're not there by any means, but that, that lurks. Sure. I'm not accusing Catherine of it because as we all know, Catherine Foundling is an unrealistically flawless character with absolutely no failings to speak of. That does sound like cat. Yeah. Also everything goes too easily for her. But speaking of perfect characters... And then Catherine wants Black to get through her team, tell her if everyone's clear, and she asks, Hakram? She wants to know if Hakram is someone she can trust. And we, we all know. He's Hakram. Move right. On. And Black talks about his grades. He's just Hakram. Move on. <laughs> yeah. Also, his grades were fine, except in Latin. So, who cares? In Latin? <laughs> That's what it says, right? Uh, approximately, yeah. Uh, also, may I add some air quotes that EE e. neglected to put in? Oh, please do. Continuing on his analysis of Hakram, no real political affiliations to speak of, not even in his clan. He did spend a lot of time in the college socializing with officers <laughs> from other companies. Yeah. Do you think Hakram, not necessarily now, but by the end of the story, do you think Hakram has, and in what number do you think he has, bastards? Huh. I don't know. I, I know very little about prophylactic in this setting. Sure. Prophylactic birth control. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I it seems I do know about prophylactic sword control. Right. It's called armor or be the mirror knight. <laughs> it seems very possible, I guess. I mean, uh, Hakram does um <clears throat> socialize. So, yeah, maybe. But Hakram's not the only person we hear about who has done fraternizing, and some have done it a lot more exotically. Yeah. Uh, we uh, I say that when I think about the roots of the words fraternizing is such it's a weird one, a yep. choice for that one, but it, mm-hmm. 
but it's been imbued with the meaning such now that you can easily use it. But no, I, I yeah. get you. Yeah, it's there's some something interesting going on there for sure. I feel like it'd be a great pun to pull out in the right case of the wrong affections. You know, putting that one in my back pocket. Uh, but we we dive into uh, Kat's paramour, and uh, we get a little bit more information about her grandmother. You know the the Fay relationship. Uh, it turns out that uh, uh, this the grandmother rode with the Wild Hunt. Now we don't know much about what that means in this setting yet, but you don't need to. The Wild Hunt has some connotations and there's just sort of this casual oh by the way <laughs> she's two generations removed from the wild hunt uh <laughs> i don't know there's just something very funny to me about that not you know she wasn't some rando fay she was a member of the wild hunt i don't know this this lineage is very funny to me it's wild to think about how we actually learn a whole lot more about the fay and we get invested in a number of fairy storylines and characters. Whereas the things like the gnomes or really the dwarves for the most part, and certainly the chain of hunger are just there and never delved into when out of mm-hmm. everything, fairies are kind of the thing that you would expect to be ambient and weird in the background or even where it's present ambient and weird. EE makes good choices. And to be clear, there's no sarcasm there. EE makes good choices. Oh yeah. But and Black goes on to level some scathing criticism towards towards Carl with she'll never be able to change the course of a battle like Wakesa or Masego can. And like uh, obviously, why why is that even being mentioned as a negative? Of uh, <laughs> was there a question that this more or less random mage who has some you know a neat trick would rival the warlock or his apprentice and when it comes to effect, grand changes on a battlefield i don't know it's just a very funny thing for black to bring up like well you know she's good and all but you know. it's the equivalent of saying the horrifically militarized and extremely brutal new york police department will never be able to affect the course of world events the way the u.s military can right <laughs> yep yeah you are right and Kat's response to that, entirely in her own narration, but her response to that, the first three words, not entirely accurate. And she goes on to explain that she says not entirely accurate because if she could call down a lightning bolt on an enemy general, that would certainly affect the course of a fight. Which it would, because she can change the course of a battle. Mm-hmm. But changing the course of a battle like Wakesa can changes the geography. Changing the course of the battle like Chrysanthemum can, kills the guy. Right. You, you, you got a dead dude. Maybe a couple of dead dudes. Maybe a bunch of. She could do a bunch of. The scale here is definitely very different. Let's see. We've got one person who can, you know, mess with administration and organization a little bit. And then you've got one person who can win a battle by himself. The scale there is... Definitely, definitely different than Kat seems to think it is. But, you know. Right in thinking that a bomb can do a lot of damage. But, you know, matches can hurt you too. So, exactly. write that one down. <laughs> so, the thing about wine okay. is it is high in alcohol. 
Sure. Surprisingly high in alcohol if you don't realize it. Say if you start learning about alcohol in a high school or middle school health class and you learn how, oh, look, wine's really high in alcohol compared to, say, beer. But Black pours himself a second cup of wine and offers it to Catherine. And she nods. And her justification is, I didn't have anything else planned for the night. Great. Following up with, nothing wrong with having another few. And Another few wines. It is possible to drink to excess in moderation. Which sounds silly, but that's absolutely true. You, There's very little reason why you can't abuse a substance briefly. But just casually, oh, I'll have a few more glasses of wine from somebody who a book ago was judgmental about someone having a drink. We're not watching a trajectory into alcoholism yet, because that's uh, that'll be next winter. <laughs> because of that, yeah, you, I got you. I did a thing. Uh, but um, she has certainly... Th- this is going to be cutting-edge analysis I don't think anyone's made, but I think Catherine Foundling compromises on a few of her initial rigid moral standards over the course of the series. Are you sure we read the same series? Uh... I think so. This says an idiot's guy to evil. Yeah, I guess we did then. All right. Well, maybe maybe I just missed that part. That's why we're doing um, a whirlwind reread. So Black notes that the fact of having Catherine as a lover can put someone into danger because that makes him a target. And Catherine acknowledges this, but then says, let's not pretend Eris wouldn't see all my senior officers dead in a heartbeat if she could manage it. And like, give it a bit. And... Let's see how Eris interacts with your senior officers. I think you'll be Yikes. interested to see. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would I would give that a solid yikes. Meanwhile, Black notes that Catherine's right to be forming her own personal guard, but that, that doesn't go far enough. That's a purely reactive way of thinking. And Catherine's immediate response to that, filling in blanks that Black is not putting, filling in blanks that Black has not filled here, but that he wouldn't really oppose feeling this way. She says, we're in the middle of a war. I can't just take the 15th to pray and start click. I can't just take the 15th to pray and start kicking down true blood doors. And I love that her mind goes there like father, like daughter. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and also I love that her logic in this sentence is if we were not at war, I could take a legion of the empire back to start warring on the pillars of the empire. Yep. You can't just cross the Rubicon, Catherine. Literally no one can do that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... She's right about the conclusion. I can't do this thing. She's wrong about why. And it's not the war. She gets close, though. She's, a, you know, A for effort. You know, even in all her glory and power, when Catherine finally goes back to praise with the conquering army, she only knocks down one True Blood's door, and it's from the inside. And then she's done. <laughs> yeah. I, like, she may have gotten a free callow, but I'm giving her, like, 50% on all the side quests of that one alone. I mean, 50% is a passing grade, right? Uh, it would be, except for it's 50% of the remaining population that gets Ooh. scored. Well, I was never that good at math, so I'll count it. It's, it's interesting because Black... Uh, the the point of this is Black saying you need to start being proactive. Um, you can't you can't just sit back. You 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 know you thrive in chaos. Talking to Caddy, or you thrive in chaos. You're great at improvising. This these are strengths of yours. However, if you're constantly on the back foot, you'll 
make mistakes. You're going to have problems down the line. And he says, I'm not going to gainsay your results in Summer Home. Um, but then he also says, you ceded initiative to the enemy. And while that is true, he it seems like he's overlooking the fact that her refusal to be proactive in Summer Home was because she was laying a trap for the enemy, right? It's, it, it's not that she just sat around and waited for something to happen and then reacted to it. She had plans in place. I, I understand that what he's saying is you need, you know, you could have been hunting, you could have been going out there and trying to to put these things. Hunter, Hunter was on the other side. Oh, sorry, um, but you, you know, you could have been going out there and trying to set the encounter in a place of your choosing rather than sort of guiding it as best you can. Set the city on goblin fire in a place of your choosing. Right, exactly. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Uh, but it's it's just. It does seem to that he's not giving her enough credit that she did have a plan that intentionally seeded the initiative. It intentionally lured the enemy into the open because that was the most efficient way of getting them out there. Uh, not to say Black isn't aware of this or doesn't have his own issues, but the way he phrases you know, his own issues with that plan, but the way he phrases it feels like it's missing some context for what was going on in Summer Home, or at least not bringing up the context. I'm not out here saying Black is unaware of, you know, how the how the battle progressed. But you can't say that because he's a mastermind. He, you know, yeah, he is. And he tries to encourage Cat towards that. Cat is saying, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not a mastermind. I'm not that kind of person. And Black's response isn't, well, here's some tricks around that. or what, It's just learn to be. He literally tells her, just be smarter as the solution to her problems to, to you know, getting on, on his level. And it's the best advice. It, there's no tricks. There's no, like, okay, compensate using these strengths or get these people around you. Just be smarter. Which, by the way, advice for everybody in school right now, be smarter. Yeah, just simply be smarter. And you can't get upset that Black is telling her to do something so hard. Because he learned that lesson the hard way and would prefer that she did not have to. The lesson being the loss of someone dear, but don't worry about it. Also, whom did Black lose? Are we talking about family? Or is there someone specific? Uh, good question. Is this somebody that we know about? I mean, there's no shot he's referring to Aliyah, right? Like the, because this is more talking about the loss from external factors because an opponent did something. And I don't think that's what's going on with the Empress. If he wanted to talk about Aliyah here, and he said it, yeah, he, he's he would be building a very bad story for himself. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. He could be talking about when his family was crucified early on. I don't yeah. know something about the way he says it. I I don't mean to minimize losing your family by crucifixion. Every listener who's gone through that, my heart goes out to you. Thoughts and prayers. But the way he says this feels like there was a you just inappropriately twist of the knifey story his little brother who followed him off to the legions and he promised to protect and then died or young love who died or something where he had the responsibility as a protector right. more than no it's black maybe early on he felt like he could be in control of his whole family because it was the heir who killed them right I think you're right that the important detail has to be 
responsibility on his end, specifically being reactive rather than proactive. Otherwise, it doesn't really fit here with what he's saying. And so from what we know, I things that are inciting incidents, I don't know would qualify because that would be prior to where his narrative was fitting in with his antagonist, you know? So I, I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to here, but it feels like, I, I agree, it feels like there is something specific. It, it's not, I've learned, or I've seen it happen, or I've learned that lesson over the years, or anything like that is, I learned that lesson the hard way, which, it, I, I don't know, I, he very well could be referring to it generally, but it feels specific. I, I, I do agree. None of the generals are dead yet, though. Uh, I'm sure generals have died, though. I, these can't all be the, the ones we know about, though. So who cares? Okay, fair. Uh, and a we'll... lot of them are the original ones, which is awesome. And whew, old goblins. So Black, Black has an interesting relationship with relationships because his relationship is one in which there is no controlling or endangering his partner. Mm-hmm. And I don't know this colors his viewpoint a little bit because he says to Catherine about hers, she's a grown woman. She can make her own decisions. Yeah, it, it's definitely advice colored by Black's experience because, right, she is a grown woman and can make her own decisions. However, you can't make a good decision if you don't have the information at hand. I, you know, to use a a phrase that I don't think Black is going to use, but applies here. It's, it's she can't make, she can't give informed consent here because she doesn't know what she's consenting to. She doesn't know what the dangers are. There's no name lore education, broadly speaking. And so, yeah, she could choose. Yeah, I want to be with Cat. I understand there's going to be some danger because she's a military leader, yada yada. But there's not the full understanding about what she's signing on for. And Black seems to just sort of wave that away and say, well, you, if you know that there is some risk, that's good enough. And I don't think that's fair. Though, to be fair, we get back to the whole, how much agency can you deny someone being able to have without denying them agency and blah, 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 blah. blah. But I agree entirely because you got to know. He justifies all of this reasoning with, it's all right to want things for yourself, Catherine. She doesn't want to be the kind of person who hurts others for her own sake. And Black says there's nothing righteous about martyrdom. He takes no guidance from someone whose crowning achievement is their own death. And I don't particularly have a conversation about this ready. I just want to point out a few notable people in the story who arguably have a crowning achievement in their death. The first and last of whom may have their crowning achievement in their avoidance of death. Mm -hmm. Catherine, at the end of this rebellion, achieves victory through death and cheats it. The Grilgrim dies spectacularly, and that is a pretty major achievement. And the Dead King also really got his crowning achievement in death. But again, he's the Dead King. His crowning achievement was cheating death. But we see martyrdom chewed over a few times here ruminated upon chewed like cud with yeah with cat at least there's you can see what black is saying as sort of a, as a vein within the the martyrdom that she undertakes to use an uncommon verb i think for martyrdom um but black the he finishes this by saying sacrifice solves nothing on its own 
It is no substitute for the labor needed to change things, just an easy way out. Kat's martyrdom, Kat's death, Kat's sacrifice is not easy. It's not her shirking responsibility. It's not her going out in a blaze of glory and being done with it. It is part of the effort she's putting in and not even the end of the effort she's putting in, but the middle. And the sacrifice is not solving anything on its own. The sacrifice is a means to an end, the end being the you know furthering her plan, furthering what's going on to solve the issues. So you're right I, that Catherine it isn't falling into what Black is concerned about because she is focused. She's she's hitting more on the good things that can go alongside martyrdom and also just not staying dead. Staying dead is a major theme in this story and also often associated with the enemy, but not exclusively. But the, the martyrdom is an interesting topic here because Black goes on to, you know, he's talking about martyrdom. Kat is uh, talking about about it as well and she draws an interesting line to me between villains and heroes between evil and good she says that the heroes are wrong because her life is as valuable as everybody else's so martyrdom so self-sacrifice isn't necessarily the greater good it's not necessarily the right thing to do to treat your life as less valuable than somebody else's you know if you sacrifice yourself for somebody else it's not a positive thing but the flip side of that that she draws is like that she points to is like narcissism that villains are saying we matter more because of who we are and you know the line between good and evil in practical guide is obviously something that you can talk about forever there's so much there it's a lot more abstract and distant than the people pretend it is than most of the people pretend it is in the story but this is an interesting line to me it's not necessarily just altruism versus selfishness but a step beyond that of martyrdom martyrdom or self-sacrifice versus like narcissism it's just it's the difference between i'm willing to throw it all away for one other person because my life is less valuable versus i'm going to take things from other people because my life is more valuable is just a it's a line that i don't know comes up as often as i would have expected with this being cat's perspective but it's i don't know it's, it's just not one that i often think about when i'm thinking about the line between good and evil in the setting more valuable is such a difficult thing though in a story like this where in certain substantial and fundamental ways catherine's life is more valuable than any other soldier in her legion because sure. she's the squire mm-hmm. during the final crusade catherine's life is more valuable than nearly if not entirely everyone else's she so much of the endeavor is pinned on her both officially and unofficially if catherine foundling died i don't think the coalition would have unraveled entirely immediately i don't think could in the face of that but if catherine's gone my beloved cordelia is the only one with any interpretation of salvation for the continent and not to both love her and misquote her but i do not want to live in a world where cordelia hasenbach is right about that yeah i mean it this this like whose life matters more thing is uh always a sticky topic to dive into but it becomes a weird one when there's like 
a, an explicit diegetic protagonist uh, where Kat is just the main character for a massive coalition of the entire continent against the BBEG. Like, he's just there. He's the bad guy. And that's just how the world works. It makes the whose life matters or what is sacrifice and all of these things, all, all these questions, a bit strange to grapple with. Not It doesn't remove them, but it makes grappling with them a little awkward, I would say. Whereas even in our world, the powerful or rich are replaceable. If Elon Musk died tomorrow, a handful of things would be immediately better. But for the most part, all the great evil engines he heads would chug on. And also, Twitter would be a slightly less horrific place, maybe. Definitely have great memes for a few days. But it, we just don't he's have... not special. We just don't have personal power in the way that a fa- any fantasy setting does but especially the guide like the difference between me and the most individually powerful person who has ever lived you know a mike tyson or something is what that uh, is, is a difference that can be mitigated with the simplest of tools frankly and whereas in this setting the difference between a random peasant and cat is that's more or less a god compared to them. Like it, it's just the difference there is massive. And so saying that her life is the same as somebody else's is or has the same value from a moral standpoint, you can you can stand by that. Sure, I yeah, you that's a tough one to argue. But from a practical standpoint, and that's what this story is about. Cat eh. is like a god to a normal person, and Ranger is like a god to Cat. At this point, it's yeah, and she gets brought up here a bit. Uh, <laughs> Black is talking about his the person that he was once or is in love with, uh, as an answer to Cat asking about that. And mystery woman, Ooh. yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> Black is saying how exceptional she is, uh, you know, he wishes he could see her more often. And Cat asks such a sweet, like innocent question that has me had me actually laughing on this reread. She says, "And you've never worried, and you've never been worried. Your enemies would try to get to you through her." <laughs> it's just, oh, Catherine. There, the lack of understanding here is not her fault, but it is so very funny and. You have to wonder if a year or two down the line, as Kat learns a little bit more, if she looks back on this conversation and maybe not cringes, but finds it as funny as I do. And Black's response is right. I pity anyone fool enough to try. Yeah, I was about to say they'd be taking their life into their own hands if they tried, but even that is too generous to them. They don't, their hands, they don't hold, they, yep. So Catherine comes clean to her father about having met with the Empress, which I'm not going to accuse her of having kept from him this is their time to chat right what what you gonna do write a letter and black seems unconcerned which Catherine says shouldn't have surprised me he and militia were supposed to be thick as thieves and though i'd started to notice fractures in that relationship there were still decades of trust to back it what fractures has she noticed i remember noticing some fractures but she wasn't there you weren't either you don't read the interludes right well cat has mentioned or sorry Black has mentioned disagreements with Elia. He has meant like the the differences in how they would handle the nobles, for instance, of 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 price is has been made clear to Cat, and so she could read into that certainly. 
Um, and she met with the Empress, with Militia, and the vibe of the meeting was very much, we are going behind Black's back to discuss the future. There was never like a, ah, and, you know, we absolutely cannot tell Black that this discussion happened or this, that, or the other thing. But the vibe was very much, yeah, he's not here because we're talking about him. And I think that shows some fractures. I don't know if Kat knows the extent of it, but, you know, she's a smart gal. She she picked up on a couple things. But not too many things because Black gives her some children's books and some statistics. And she can't really figure out why that matters. And Black says that children's tales are the most important part of any culture's literature. And I think that's quite the claim. I, I'm willing to say I disagree, but mildly. Because there are fundamental lessons in a children's literature. But at the same time, I don't think you can get much understanding of American mores from, say, Fox and Suck. By the way... Anyone, I was going to say anyone who speaks English, but if you're listening to this and you don't, great work. Good luck on your lessons, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I don't know why else you're doing this. Uh, We love you. Patreon at patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. But Fox and Socks is one of the greatest children's books. It goes so hard from the first word, which is Fox, all the way to the very last word, which is probably Sir or numb if you count the sign at the end of the book. It, it, it's so good, but it doesn't mean much. I know there are other children's stories. I, I read a lot of kids' books. and I, I disagree, actually, with you, not with Black. I, I find it hard to disagree with what Black's saying. I don't know that I fully agree with him, but... Most important, it's a hard thing to agree with unless you're operating yeah. solely on strong feeling. Important isn't real. I, it, like it depends on what you value. I'm sure there are things that you could say are more important. Like if you're if you're trying to understand how a culture's like rich people view the world, children's literature is not going to help with that. If that's like the most important Tax thing about a culture, is. right? Sure. But uh, even Fox and Socks and a number of other books in that vein, I think tell us because uh, tell us a lot about. Uh, what is valuable to American literaturists, which is the word I'm going with, children's literaturists. We we value... Literalists. Thank you, literalist. We, we value literacy, and we value an understanding of flexibility in our language, or, or in the language, learning the language, I guess, because English is kind of a wonky one in how, like, spelling and pronunciation don't always line up super well and the rules for spelling are all over the place. The technical term for this is that English has a deep orthography, which I think is a great term. And Fox and Socks existing and being popular, I mean, it, it tells you that learning how to play with language is important. It, it the, the content of the book, yeah, is nothing, obviously. It, it's supposed to be nothing, and that's why it's wonderful. Like, it's a fun book to read. Which also tells you something. We value fun. We value play. We value, you know, to an extent, these things are all there. I think that... There is a documentary portion about Tweedle Beetles. True. Yeah, see? And we value uh, entomology. Um, <laughs> it, it, it boils down to, you You know, if you look at an individual book, it probably won't tell you anything. Sure. Unless it's a, you know, the fact that we have children's books about the presidents which definitely exists there you go we value the 
the presidents or knowing about our our the government or the Who's great we? the great man theory we americans uh broadly speaking but but you look at trends in how many children's books are just silly nonsense tells you we do value children having fun and that is an important thing to know because that's not true for every culture historically speaking or even today we value an exploration of language rather than a strict here's how language has to be i mean dr seuss generally is exploring what you can do with something that's questionably english at times and yet his works are incredibly popular i what you teach children is what you are you know children are going to be adults one day so teaching them is preparing the next generation and we value these things i do think that children's literature like children's tales i know that black here is specifically talking about probably things like uh uh fairy tales like our equivalent of fairy tales the parables the yep these have a specific moral attached to them and those are valuable again most important part eh incredibly valuable yeah I, I find it hard to fully disagree because there are so many layers to what you can learn from the trends of children's of children's literature that i don't know that any other category any other genre really compares on its own i am stepping into murky territory here but Ooh. fairy tales and folk tales and parables and urban legends and what have you that Anything which would fall under the umbrella of folklore mm -hmm. very often has a clear pedagogical bent with the pedo and they're very intentional here. But, and this is to the extent that, like, the collection of fairy tales done by Jakob and Wilhelm Krim are Kinder und Hausmärchen, uh, children's and house fairy tales, home and children's fairy tales, if I can rearrange it a bit. Because obviously, Snow White, Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella are not great tavern stories. But at the same time, they embody so much of the shared cultural, shared literary cultural background of a society. And there's, I don't know, I've worked with fairy tales a lot. I've taught them at university. And maybe I'm just proving the point because of all that can be pulled out of them. I just have a hard time looking at them as merely children's stories. But then again, what is merely for children? Right. I, I enjoy on... Fox and Socks, and I'm not a child, probably, depending on what you mean by that. Louis is one of the greatest shows on television today, mm -hmm. and it is definitely for children. So maybe like so many of those Kinder und Hausmärchen were. But I have sat down to watch Bluey while home alone because I wanted something nice for seven minutes while I ate. And you know what? I should do that again. It, yeah, I, it's, yes. I think drawing the line between any genre and another one is always going to be a pretty dicey procedure and is going to say as much about you as it is about the genres, like where you draw those lines, which is another layer to why it's hard to 100% disagree or 100% agree with Black's claim here. It is an interesting claim. It tells us about Black. It tells us about how Black views the world. It tells us about where he's looking for things and what, what I don't know, how he views legacy and education and all these things. So, you know, it's a, it's a 
great line for understanding this character more. Is it a line that even with my (laughs) lengthy defense of it, am I fully on board with what he's saying? Nah. But I think he's more right than wrong. And I think we're more done than continuing. Wow. Yeah. Strong one. Because that is in fact... You open your mouth and poetry comes out. That that's all we've got time for. We're done. We're done. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss Blame. Flame. And name. Now, is your tongue numb? Wait that's in Fox their and Sox blood. reference. <laughs> Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing erratic erratas, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Halloween Story by Jeff Harvey. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the long price do you have questions comments or contributions are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors email us at the long price at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work find our patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting all the artists who make this work possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray. Our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and a secret, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 16, Trust. <laughs>